everyone, welcome to episode 73 of the Ubuntu Security Podcast. I'm Alex Murray. So it's been a couple of weeks since we've done one of these. Last week was a product sprint for Canonical and so uh, myself and Joe and others were participating in that. Usually those are in-person affairs where we all travel and meet up somewhere in the world. It was meant to be in Vienna this time. However, uh, due to current travel restrictions and the like, this was done entirely virtually, which was an interesting experience to say, to say the least, but it was good. Um, so yeah, we are discussing what had happened in uh, the 2004 development cycle and then plans for the uh, 2010 development cycle, so what we will be doing uh, for the next six months. So uh, Joe and I will have a chat about that uh, in an upcoming episode. However, for this one, uh, because it was recently the release of Ubuntu 2004 long-term support, uh, codenamed the Focal Fosa, uh, I will have a, a brief overview of some of the security features in that in particular that might be of interest to listeners. But first, uh, we'll do the usual roundup of vulnerabilities and fixes that have been done in the past two weeks for the supported Ubuntu releases. So over the past couple of weeks, there were 86 different CVEs addressed by uh, the team. First up, we had an update for OpenJDK. So uh, these were 13 different CVEs, and this was for Ubuntu 16.04 and 18.04 long-term support and Ubuntu 19.10. Uh, in this case, it was updating uh, to OpenJDK, the latest point releases for OpenJDK 11 and OpenJDK 8, uh, respectively, in those releases. So we were fixing things like uh, errors in regular expression handling and XML handling that would likely result in denial of service. Uh, there were also various issues in uh, TLS handshake handling. So where you could end up doing things like bypassing certificate verification or uh, maybe allowing the ability to compromise secure connections. Uh, to leak credentials, that kind of thing. There was also the chance for uh, insecure handling of carriage return and line feed characters in HTTP headers. So this would likely result in being able to you know, access, say, um, API endpoints or URLs that you weren't meant to be able to. So you'd get information disclosure then or bypassing access controls. And there are a couple of different instances of uh, possible bypasses of the Java sandbox as well that were fixed there too. Uh, we then had an update for RE2C. Uh, this is a package used to generate fast C code for passing regular, parsing regular expressions. And so this is used by a bunch of other packages really to kind of generate code. Uh, in particular, uh, this update was for the versions in uh, Ubuntu 19.10 and 20.04 long-term support. So uh, yeah, in this case, there was a heap buffer overflow if you were parsing a very long input uh, because it would check the wrong uh, length version and then you know, overflow a buffer as it went to copy that in. Uh, so that was fixed. Then we had an update for OpenEXR, uh, 12 different CVEs that were fixed for Ubuntu 16.04 and 18.04 long-term support, uh, Ubuntu 19.10 and Ubuntu 20.04 long-term support. So uh, back in episode 49 uh, was the last time I mentioned OpenEXR. This is a package that's used for handling a particular image format developed by Industrial Light and Magic. Uh, the movie studio with a high definition range and you know, obviously used for like computer imaging applications. And this is then used by things like OpenCV or GIMP or others for handling that type of image format. And it uh, looks like Project Zero have been fuzzing this. So as a result, they've found the usual types of issues that are found in uh, large code bases written in memory unsafe languages like C++, as is the case for OpenEXR. So there's a bunch of out-of-bounds reads and writes there uh, that would happen and your usual effects as a result. So things like uh, you know, crashing the application or being able to you know, read memory outside of the valid area so you'd get an information leak or then the ability to corrupt memory in such a way that you could get uh, remote code execution as well. Uh, so they were all fixed. 
we then had an update for cups. So this is the print server in Ubuntu and Linux, uh, developed nowadays mainly by Apple, but uh, two different CVEs that were fixed uh, for all the standard supported releases. That is Ubuntu 16.04, 18.04, and 20.04 long-term support, and Ubuntu 19.10. Uh, there was a heat buffer overflow when it would parse uh, PPD files. So these are the files that actually describe uh, a printer driver, essentially, how to interface with the printer. And this is parsed by cups D running as root. Uh, and so a heat buffer overflow, uh, you know, the kind of thing that you can uh, very easily get a crash as a result because you can make it you know, access memory outside of the valid range. But maybe you can also uh, corrupt memory in such a way that you can then get code execution because you can you know, put into this buffer whatever it is from the PPD file. And so, uh, yeah, you could get remote, uh, root remote code execution as a result if you can you know, supply someone a PPD file and they install it. Uh, plus there was a, a low priority issue as well, an out-of-bounds read uh, that would likely result in an info leak or maybe crash that got fixed there as well. Then we had an update for Samba, so two different CVEs that were fixed for uh, Ubuntu 14.04 uh, ESM and Ubuntu 16.04, 18.04 and 20.04 long-term support and Ubuntu 19.10. So there was a stack overflow that would be able to be triggered by an unauthenticated user when Samba is acting as an active directory domain controller. So uh, as a stack overflow, you would likely probably get a crash because that would get detected by glibc uh, by the uh, stack protector. But you could maybe get code execution if you can you know, corrupt memory in just the right way. But that is usually pretty tricky nowadays due to uh, that stack protector hardening feature and others. Uh, there was also a user after free in the Samba active directory directory domain controller LDAP server as well that was fixed too. And so that is the kind of thing, again, that can re result in uh, remote code execution or at least a crash. Then we had updates for the Linux kernel. So in particular, I want to shout out to uh, the Ubuntu kernel team as always for uh, handling all the heavy lifting on this. Uh, we really just do the uh, reporting on sec the security vulnerabilities that were fixed in this, but they're the ones that actually do the work of backboarding the fixes and integrating them. Uh, so yeah, uh, there were seven different CVEs that were fixed in the kernel in Ubuntu 19.10 or uh, EON. This is also used as the hardware enablement kernel for Ubuntu 18.04 long-term support. This is a kernel based on the upstream 5.3 kernel release. Uh, there was one high priority issue here that was fixed, which was uh, specific to the S390 architecture. And it was a race condition in page table handling there, which where you could get a local attacker could possibly get arbitrary code execution in the kernel as a result. So yeah, not a great um, bug to have, but that has been fixed. And uh, that's one that will be mentioned actually in almost all the other kernel releases that I'm going to talk about in a minute. There was also a race condition uh, that would result in a user after free in the block IOU uh, tracing, sorry, the block IO tracing subsystem. This would result in uh, an out of bounds read and so likely a crash, but maybe information leak. There was a stack, over, stack buffer overflow in the vhost net driver. Uh, this was able to be triggered by a local attacker who can perform an IO control on the dev vhost net device. So usually that is just root, uh, but maybe you've gone and changed permissions on that. So that would be accessible to an unprivileged user, but unlikely. Uh, similarly, there was a race condition uh, resulting in a user after free again in uh, the virtual terminal TTY subsystem. And then there was a bunch of low priority issues that were fixed as well. Uh, these are usually denial of service type issues via crafted file systems. The kind of things that result in uh, out of bounds memory reads, not writes. So unlikely to be able to do say uh, code execution as a result, but you know, likely to maybe crash your kernel or at least crash the driver. 
We also had an update for the kernel uh, that is used in uh, GKE and our OEM kernel. This is a 5.0 based kernel uh, for Ubuntu 18.04 long-term support when used on those platforms. And this included most of the fixes that I just talked about. Uh, there was an update for the kernel in Ubuntu 20.04 long-term support. So this is the first uh, update to that kernel, uh, which was uh, for the uh, S390 specific page table issue that I talked about before. We then had an update for the kernel in uh, Ubuntu 18.04 long-term support, uh, which is a 4.15 based kernel. And that is also used as the hardware enablement kernel in Ubuntu 16.04 long-term support. Uh, so this really included a lot of the previous issues that I mentioned before, but it did include a couple specific ones in handling of um, USB device descriptors. So basically, if you had a local attacker with a uh, you know a crafted hard physical hardware device uh, that reported these invalid values in their USB device descriptors, it could cause a crash. So they were fixed as well. And finally, for the kernel, we had an update for uh, the 4.4 based kernel in Ubuntu 16.04 long-term support, which is also used as uh, the hardware enablement kernel in Ubuntu 14.04 ESM. And in this case, it included both of the uh, TTY and block IO subsystem race conditions. So these both resulted in use after freeze and so likely memory corruption, as I talked about earlier as well. And that is it for kernel updates. Uh, just a few more to go through. We had an update for WebKit GTK, uh, one CVE that was fixed for Ubuntu 18.04 and 20.04 long-term support and Ubuntu 19.10. Uh, this is the usual sort of thing that we see in uh, web browsers where you get you know, a malicious website being able to trigger memory corruption, so maybe remote code execution. Uh, so that was fixed. Then we had an update for Mailman. So three CVEs that were addressed for Mailman in Ubuntu 16.04 and 18.04 long-term support. Uh, the most interesting one of this was uh, a possible cross-site scripting attack uh, when you know, viewing the mailing list archives of Mailman because Mailman uh, would not track the MIME type of attachments. And so when you go to view that in your browser, it doesn't supply a MIME type back for the, you know, the actual attachment that it's sending you back. So your browser will go and try to guess that. And if it guesses that it is uh, text HTML MIME type, uh, it will then go and you know, render that as it normally does a web page. And so any JavaScript that was contained in that attachment would also get rendered by your browser and executed. So uh, yeah, you could get possible uh, cross-site scripting attack as a result. Uh, just a couple more to go. We had an update for EDK2. This is uh, a really large uh, bundle of code that is used uh, to uh, basically be a UEFI firmware stack for x86 virtual machines. So on a real machine, your UEFI firmware is provided by your BIOS vendor or the machine vendor. Or maybe you've gone and uh, replaced it with, uh, what is the open source one? I forget now, anyway. Uh, so that's normally provided by your BIOS vendor, but uh, when you're booting a virtual machine, you need something else to boot to do that, to do a UEFI boot of the, you know, the actual host, of, sorry, of the virtual operating system. And so you know, this huge pile of code called EDK2 is booted. And uh, because this, the UEFI spec contains things like a network stack and device uh, disk drivers and file system handlers and all that kind of stuff, plus not to mention uh, you know, cryptographic signature parsing and handling and verification, uh, when it wants to you know, verify UEFI signatures, uh, there's a huge amount of code there. And so not surprisingly, every now and then uh, vulnerabilities are found. So there was a buffer overflow in the network stack and a separate one in the block IO uh, subsystems that were fixed. There was a stack overflow uh, 
there was failing to clear memory that contained passwords, so they would then get leaked uh, into the uh, guest operating system. There was a bunch of memory leaks that were fixed. Uh, there was a failure to properly verify EFI signatures, so perhaps an untrusted um, you know, operating system would get booted. And there was memory corruption via a double free as well in there that got fixed. We had an update for MySQL, so this fixed 25 different CVEs across Ubuntu 16.04, 18.04, and 20.04 long-term support, and Ubuntu 19.10. This is the latest upstream point releases, so for uh, Ubuntu 19.10 and 20.04 long-term support, the more recent releases, this is uh, updating to 8.0.80 and to version 5.7.30 for our older releases, Ubuntu 16.04 and 18.04 long-term support. And I won't go through all the details of those, uh, but if you want to dig into them, I have got um, links to both the uh, release notes for those versions in the show notes, plus uh, the security advisories as well uh, from Oracle. And to wrap up, um, because this was the, you know, Ubuntu 20.04 was released, we then had a bunch of updates that fixed CVEs that I've talked about in previous episodes for our, um, our older releases, but now we've gone and updated those same ones for Ubuntu 20.04 long-term support as well, now that that is officially out and released and we are officially supporting it. So we had updates for PHP, File Roller, and Python, and I talked about all those uh, last, uh, well, two weeks ago, back in episode 72. So if you want more details on those, uh, yeah, check out episode 72. Okay, so as I've mentioned a few times, uh, we recently released Ubuntu 20.04 long-term support. This is the uh, obviously the most recent long-term support release of Ubuntu. Uh, this is now supported for five years by the security team and the other teams at Canonical, and then will be supported for a further five years as extended security maintenance as well by the security team, which means that you can get 10 years of security support for this release. So it's a great one to use um, for you know, any future projects that you have. In particular, some of the things I want to highlight uh, that are great about this release and that are security related is it's using the latest um, upstream long-term support kernel, which is the 5.4 kernel. So we're essentially taking that and then backporting both security fixes and certain um, features as well from later kernels into that. So we've done things like backported uh, the WireGuard kernel module, which I think was in the upstream 5.5 kernel, back to this 5.4 kernel that we're shipping. So you now get WireGuard built in for um, for free. You don't have to run it as an external module and install you know your own secure boot um, certificate and things like that to handle that. Which means that uh, you've now got an excellent choice for deploying your own v- you know simple VPN if you like uh, directly on Ubuntu. You don't need to go with OpenVPN or any of the other uh, more complicated solutions. Uh, it also includes the latest version of the Lockdown uh, Linux security module. So in previous releases, we have shipped uh, essentially this Lockdown patch set, which is a bunch of patches that when you are booting in uh, secure boot mode, that we then restrict what uh, can be done with the kernel. So you can't go and KXEC uh, another kernel or something like that, because then you're able to get um, kind of untrusted code running that hasn't been verified uh, in the UEFI secure boot kind of path- pathway. And so this lockdown LSM essentially does the same thing, but using the Linux security module uh, subsystem instead. Uh, Then in the user space, there is an update to OpenSSH that provides uh, integration with hardware-based two-factor authentication devices like YubiKeys. Uh, So you can use a YubiKey as uh, two-factor authentication for doing SSH uh, authentication. So that is built into both the client and server. So if you uh, deploy a uh, OpenSSH server on Ubuntu 20.04, you can have the server support uh, hardware tokens and the clients as well. 
And finally, uh, something else that I thought I'd call out is that we've defaulted both uh, OpenSSL and uh, GNU TLS to use stronger TLS uh, encryption defaults by default so that it will, uh, you know, it blacklists certain insecure ciphers and certain short key lengths and things like that that make your TLS connections more secure out of the box. All right, uh, so that's it for uh, this week in security updates and for kind of community news. Next, uh, Joe and I had a chat about uh, this recent news of a new botnet discovered that's targeting Linux IoT devices called Kaiji. Hey, Alex, welcome back to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing good, Joe. Yeah, we had a week off with the sprint last week. I think I've caught up on sleep. I'm not doing too bad. Nice. Um, did you finish um, the next Neil Stevenson book that you were working on? No, I've just only just started. So I did start, yeah, Dodge. Uh, what a Dodge? Yeah, or, Dodge. No, Fall or Dodge in Hell. Um, and so far, so good. But no, I'm like, yeah. So I finished Ream Day, so that's cool. Oh, cool. What did you think of Reamdeep? <laughs> I thought it was good for the second time around. Yeah, and it's been it was long enough since reading it the first time that uh, most of it, you know, wasn't too familiar. So it wasn't, you know, still had all the surprises and things like that. And I think, um, you know, unlike a lot of his other stuff, it's a lot more uh, kind of action focused and things like that, um, which I found kind of cool. A bit of a good departure and just the more yeah, more that, nerdery. The- yeah, the whole second half is very is a, is a action movie, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. which is very cool. Um, yeah. I finished John Scalzi's new um, "The Last Emperor," um, which was his third. It's in a um, it's in a, it's the third book in the Collapsing Empire series. Yep, which is which is pretty cool. Um, it's a very enjoyable read. Um, but uh, with that, I think this week, what are we going to talk about on the podcast? We're going to talk about um, the Kaiji malware and yeah. also how far along you've gotten with your robot project. So um, uh, I believe you're using uh, a Pi and uh, an OSEP tank kit. That's it. Yeah. So actually, well, it's based off stuff that I've seen you've done, Joe. Uh, and it's it's a pretty cool platform. Uh, the OSEP tank kit is, yeah, a great um Great construction and you know, seems to work really well. And the Pi driving it is quite cool. Uh, so I was using ROS on there and had um, taken some stuff you'd done and ported it to use uh, this teleop control stuff. So then there's this other ROS control app that I can put on my Android phone so I can actually drive it around with that. And I've recently added a camera and uh, the... The motor controller board has got an infrared sensor on it for like ranging. So I'm going to start trying to add that in as well. Very cool. Yeah. That's awesome. I have a ultrasonic sensor, uh, a parallax ping on mine. Um, But I've moved on from that kit to a new kit right now. I'm playing with the um, uh, NVIDIA Jetson Nano. Uh, I got the SparkFun JetBot kit, which is a fully... It's a much more expensive kit than what we were doing with the um, Pi and the OSEP yep. um, and the motor controller. This comes um, with the Jetson Nano and a bunch of controller boards and camera. Um, so it's actually pretty, pretty well put together kit um, and a rechargeable battery. It's actually in the end. It might be close because you bought a rechargeable battery for your robot too, right? Yeah, I think it arrives today. So we'll see. Yeah. Oh, we'll so see. there you go. Yeah. So yeah. So in the end, it actually probably is fairly close in price. Um, 
But it's I think the durability of that OSEP kit is a little bit higher because it's um, got tank treads and it's aluminum and this is sort of 3D printed with um, with little stick-on wheels oh, yeah. um, and little low-power motors. Um, yep. But still, it's pretty well put together kit. Um, uh, yeah, robots are fun, and I encourage everyone playing uh, with Ubuntu at home, especially now if you're kind of stuck inside. You know, buy a buy a Pi, buy a tank kit and a motor controller, and make yourself a, a robot because robots are fun. Yeah, and I think even particularly Bros as a platform makes it very simple. You know, there's lots of um, pre-existing stuff in there, and to say say in this case, you know, do the integration with that teleop controller. Uh, it's literally just interpreting some commands and in this case it's things like you want to drive the wheels at this speed and in this case the um, this motor controller board you know it's got demo code for driving the wheels and it's literally about setting speeds on the wheels you're not having to do lots of conversions and um, and things like that so it was actually super simple to kind of just glue together you know this existing python demo code that came with the board and the ros code to then be able to say drive it um, you know you're not having to do heaps of coding from scratch because i've Originally, I'd envisioned I was going to write my own app to control it and my own code on the board to handle all that. But yet, Roz makes that so yeah, so simple because there's lots of bits already there. Very cool. I think yeah. actually, there's if you want to get started sort of on a budget, there's a kit. Um, I think the company is CamJam, and we've got a blog post from Kyle Fazari and our team on how to get up and running with Roz in Ubuntu Core, I think. And yeah. I want to say the whole kit is $25. Um, yeah, it is something cheap putting, like that, yeah. I think you're putting um, like holes in a cardboard box and like and like taping your Raspberry Pi to it. Yep. <laughs> so it's super super budget. Um, so you might want to go a step higher if you don't want to go the super budget one, but that's a really cheap way to get into it. And I think all of us are looking for some things to do in the house right now. Um, so yeah, okay, everybody, play with your robots, have fun. Roz is a great way to play with robots on Ubuntu, and there's plenty of getting started guides. Um, but the next thing we should talk about today is the Kaiji botnet. Um, yep. Have you heard about this one? Uh, so, yeah, I heard about it when you mentioned it, Joe. Uh, <laughs> but it looks like, so um, there are a couple of things that looked, uh, I guess, different about this. You know, the things we've seen in the past, like Mirai and that, um, you know, they're all around trying to brute force SSH. And so this is another a similar one in that vein where that's how it is trying to, um, I guess, get a foothold you know, on a machine. It's not trying to use some um, zero day against SSH or some other service that's commonly there. Uh, so if you are, um, you know, if you've got SSH exposed to the internet and you're using password authentication, uh, you could potentially be vulnerable to this you know, if you're using simple to guess passwords or commonly used passwords. Um, but there are a few other things that were different about it as well. Well, before we get to what's different about it, this is interesting. It's only targeting the root account, yep. right? So uh, unlike Mirai, which targeted a combo of 60 usernames and passwords, this is just root. Yep. Um, so you'd have to have root uh, remote connection enabled, um, which uh, I think in sshd underscore config, it's um, root, permit root login. I yep. think that's the command line, the option. And I think we have it set to no by default in um, in Ubuntu. That's right. Um, so you'd... You'd have to enable that, um, yeah, and uh, or you'd have to have like an IoT device, which a lot of the like dev boards come with, you know, just a uh, root account and the password, yep. like the name of the dev board. Yeah. Um, so that is a little bit different with it, which is why it's this one is not just IoT devices, but also poorly configured Linux servers, which gives it a little more horsepower because it's a remote DDoS, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I'm actually wondering. So I know that we uh, for 
so Ubuntu, um, you know, Ubuntu server, we don't own our root by default. And then for Ubuntu core, our actual IoT focused version of Ubuntu, we don't even enable um, password-based authentication by default. We only do uh, public key. And so the idea there is that as you set it up, you know, you actually enroll in your um, you know, your public key so that only you can access it. But I'm wondering if for Raspbian, whether that does permit anything by default. Uh, although at least based on, uh, okay, no, so based on Stack Exchange, it looks like it does not enable that by default either. So that's good. You know, if you are running a Pi, so say, you know, previously we we're talking about tanks a few minutes ago and putting Pies on them and things, odds on your, you know, no matter what you're running on that Ubuntu or um, Raspbian, you're probably not going to be vulnerable to this, which is good. Mm-hmm. Very good. And, and then, um, like you said, it's different. Um, what are some of the ways this is different than traditional um, malware that we've seen lately? Not malware, I'm sorry. Traditional sort of um, attack kits that, that we've seen recently. Well, yeah. So what what was interesting about this was that um, it's all written from scratch. And it's not written in C, as a lot of these usually are. Uh, it's written in Golang, which is kind of cool. Uh, because we've seen, I guess, Golang being adopted, uh, I think it's what nearly 10 years old now, or probably just over 10 years old, um, since it first came out of Google. And you know we use it a lot here at Canonical. You know things like SnapD is written in GoLang, and uh, but it's interesting just be now being <laughs> being picked up by malware authors <laughs> and used by them as well, because GoLang uh, I guess is written around this uh, kind of co co processing model, all these um, uh, go processors, uh, and so it's very good for writing network based you know applications, uh, things that are doing a lot of networking. So in the case you're, you're writing malware that's you know, talking back to C2 servers, and then in this case, launching DDoS attacks, it's all network-based stuff. So I can mm-hmm. imagine Go is quite a cool um, a cool language to use for that. Plus then you're also hopefully avoiding introducing uh, you know, things like memory corruption vulnerabilities and stuff that you traditionally may have in C-based languages. And so hopefully your malware then is uh, a little more you know, resilient to, to itself being used uh, for attack against yeah. other things. <laughs> well, this is pretty interesting. So after it, after it, after your box gets popped, it then, um, which I imagine is just the, the Go automation, you know, trying to brute force your, uh, your your box. When it gets in, it then creates a directory um, in user bin lib. Um, so in user bin, it creates a directory because it user bin lib. Um, and then puts a few files in there. Um, or puts a file in there with a common utility name like PS or Netstat or something like that. So you wouldn't you'd think, oh, it's in there and it's a library for that. Yep. Um, so it sort of hide itself in plain sight there, um, which is which is good. You know, a lot of times you'll get like a weird hash as a file name, and people just don't look at it. We saw that a lot um, with uh, some of the automated uh, attack kits. You know, they they you'd be able to identify them because they're using like a sixteen digit. Um, I'm sorry, a 16 character long password, and this is or a uh, 16 character long file name. Yep. And they're not they're not doing that; they're just calling it something you wouldn't expect, um, which I think is pretty ingenious. You know, you gotta give them a little creativity. So, yeah. so what I read was saying that this is nation state, that this is tied back to China, and it's um, it's a nation state act- actor, um, yep. which would maybe say that hey, they're modernizing their their tool chain by going to go. Yeah. I think that's kind of cool. I think by uh, yes, not reusing existing components, obviously you've got more um, work to develop that up front, but then you've got now a fresh toolkit that you know you have all in house and is not relying on other you know, other bits or not. So I think that, and also by using Go is kind of neat as well. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's that's super interesting. Um, but yeah, as we said, so out of the box on Ubuntu, you're not vulnerable to this, and mm-hmm. if you have enabled root 
uh, SSH logins, uh, make sure you've at least set a pretty strong uh, long password for that. Or, you know, to create another user and use um, sudo. Yeah. Um, and also, like, if your box is on the public internet and you've got root enabled, you're doing something wrong. I'm sorry. Or if your box is on the public internet, you've got SSH allowed and you yeah. don't have a tool like um, fail to ban or SSH guard enabled, you're yep. also doing something wrong. Yep. Um, and if you've got a box on the public internet that allows passwords for login, not keys, you're also doing something wrong. Um, kind of snarky on that one, but come on. You, like These attacks aren't new. For, yep. for, you know, pr- protect yourself. <laughs> so I guess, um, so that does make me wonder then, uh, because it's targeted at IoT, there's still, there must be a lot of systems around that are still shipping with uh, root SSH logins enabled with simple passwords, right? So that these things can actually be effective. You know, there's enough enough um, vulnerable devices for them to be able to use. Because in this case, it's, uh, you know, it, uh, it's a DDoS uh, platform Mm -hmm. so you know they're obviously looking at trying to compromise i'm guessing you know tens or hundreds of thousands of devices and so you know there must be i don't know a heap of vulnerable light bulbs or whatever it is that (laughs) you know ip cameras um, yeah yeah exactly yeah and well you know i think i think uh yeah i think people should definitely keep an eye out for what new attack frameworks are written in i'd be curious to see if if go is going to stay there it's also showing how like when we started seeing attack kits in Python, it was kind of like, oh, cool, Python's really taking off. Yep. So I think it's kind of a, a signal that, that Go is really, really taking off. Yeah, uh, I'm going to keep an eye out for the, the first one written in Rust. I think that would be uh, yeah. great to see as well. <laughs> and I'd say Rust as a bike rider, just seeing their logo always makes you think, wait, what website am I on? Am I looking at bike parts again? <laughs> well, everybody... Have a fantastic week. Thanks for listening to us. And as usual, if anything you'd like to hear about, anything you want us to cover, just let us know on our Twitter. We're Ubuntu underscore sec. And um, have a great week. Thanks, Joe. We'll talk to you again next week. And thanks as always for that, Joe. All right, that's it for this week's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening again for another week. It's been great to do this all with you again. Uh, we'll do this all again next week uh, in the meantime if you want to get in contact with the team you can reach us at security you can also come and chat to us on the Freenode IRC network we hang out in the Ubuntu Harden channel we also have a security section on discourse.ubuntu.com and finally as Joe said we are on Twitter at Ubuntu underscore sec so come find us there too if you like Twitter alright uh, until next time remember keep calm because we've got you back and I'll speak to you soon bye